Amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles again. We're going to be looking this morning in the prophet Jeremiah chapter 11 and chapter 12. And so I just invite you to turn with me there. Uh, We're going to be looking at this text all the way from chapter 11, verse 18, all the way to chapter 12, uh, verse 6. Really, the point of application for us today comes from chapter 12, verse 5. That's really where we're going to be focusing our attention. So uh, as you're following along at home, I just invite you to turn in your Bibles with us and, and invite all of you to turn in your Bibles, chapter 12 verse 5. I just want to read that verse for you one more time and uh, and then we'll pray. We'll ask the Lord to illuminate the text before us and then and then we'll get to work. And so I just want to remind you Jeremiah has complained to God. And he said, "You know, I wish you would just do justice now. I don't get why this is taking so long." And God's response comes in verse 5. "If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, How are you going to compete with the horses? And if it is in a safe land that you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father in heaven, we just again say thank you for your word, for its uh, its clarity to us, Lord. Father, we pray this morning that uh, as we enter into 2021 and as we consider the year ahead, we pray, Lord, that we would always look to you, not to our current circumstances, but to you. That we wouldn't uh, shape our our perspective on the world according to what we see every evening on the nightly news or what we read every morning in the newspapers. Lord, help us always to look to your word, to understand your purposes. Father, my prayer for my brothers and sisters at First Baptist Church is that we would understand that the story ends well, that the story ends in triumph and victory because you are our king. But Lord, help us to understand that even with that promise of a beautiful future before us, you, God, are still doing things in us here and now, and that you still have purposes in the present moment. Help us to be faithful to those purposes, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We enter into uh, 2021, and we have many years ahead of us, I think, in which to anticipate a further erosion of uh, of respect, of what I would consider respect for freedom of thought, freedom of religion in particular. This is what we have observed in recent weeks, uh, recent months, particularly with the government's crackdown on churches. Um, There have been other organizations that have complained as well, but the churches in particular are my focus this morning. The government has taken it upon itself to decide for all of us what is essential and what is non-essential. And we have appealed, I have written letters, other pastors have written letters. Uh, There's been numerous correspondence that's gone back and forth. I've shared that correspondence with you. Um, The government's response to all of that is if there's any issue If people are struggling, if they're depressed, if there's any difficulty, they can just call the suicide hotline. They can check themselves into the psych ward at Royal Inland Hospital. We will provide everything that they need. Um, I find that that quite appalling. I really do. But it shouldn't surprise us. If we were to step back and to look at all of the many movements that have been made over the last just five years, 
we would see that this is a trend that is quite discernible, easily able to be recognized. There is a progressively coercive power that the government, both provincially as well as federally, is exerting, a coercive power that is being exercised against faith, against Christianity in particular, within Canada. At the federal level, we saw three years ago with Trudeau's Canada Summer Jobs Program that he would provide grants for internships only if those organizations which were applying for those grants agreed with the government line on abortion. And of course, this disenfranchised a number of churches and a number of summer camps and Bible camps that had for decades utilized that Canada Summer Jobs Grant Program. We also see it provincially. Provinces all across Canada, with the implementation in the public education system of the teaching of transgenderism and uh, this idea that your identity is found in your sexuality, in particular here in British Columbia, I'm referring to uh, the curriculum known as SOGI 123. All of this intended to help our children see themselves the way that our government wants them to see themselves, which is not as individuals created in the image of God, but as individuals whose apparently highest ideal in life is to find satisfaction in sexual fulfillment and sexual personal gratification. And then, of course, taking that and running wild with what that should look like. We don't see this only within the public education system, but we also see that couples are being denied the opportunity to foster or to adopt children from the Ministry of Children and Families, again, if they don't agree with government-mandated ideology and beliefs. Within the university campuses, there's been a suppression of free speech. At universities and different colleges, Antifa is being given the de facto power to decide who does and doesn't have the privilege of speaking in public. If they agree with the viewpoint of, ideolo- uh, the, of Antifa, they're allowed the opportunity to speak, but if not, they are denied. And just a handful, of, just, just two, three years ago, you'll recall Trinity Western University versus the Law Society of British Columbia, in which Trinity University wanted to open a law school training lawyers, but training them according to a Christian worldview. And as a part of their educational program, they required their students to sign a covenant, a student covenant, which, among other things, stipulated monogamy, that is, being uh, chased before marriage, not having sex outside of marriage. And that was just too much for the Law Society of British Columbia to stomach, so they refused to accredit the Trinity Western University Law Program. And, of course, they took that all the way to the Supreme Court and lost that argument. In Ottawa, there was a law passed recently in which pro-life activists could not stand up and protest against abortion within 200 meters of any facility that happened to be conducting abortions. And it goes on and on and on. I think most recently, though, with the COVID-19 pandemic, what we are seeing is quite clear that the government does not consider churches, faith, worship, as essential. It's not important to your life as far as the government is concerned. Our minister, our minister of uh, public safety and the solicitor general here in British Columbia, the Honorable Mike Farnworth, I have to chuckle, it's a British... uh, It's a British tradition, I guess, that's been handed down here in Canada in which titles are so important. Uh, And I was reminded of that when I received a letter back 
from one of the assistants to Premier Organ, in which he said, Reverend Clay Camp. And I was like, what? I'm Reverend? I've never, nobody's ever called me Reverend. So I was struck by that. I didn't sign my initial letter to them, Reverend Clay Camp, so I was struck to have that coming back. But it's, it's ultimately meaningless because they didn't actually revere anything that I said, so I'm not sure why they bothered with the title. With Mike Farnworth, our honorable minister of public safety and the solicitor general, he made a comment. He was being asked specifically, what do you, what do you say to those churches that are continuing to gather, to worship? Uh, what do you say about those, uh, those churches? And, and in the context of this interview, which was given on December the, Monday, December the 14th, uh, he was being asked about the fines that were being levied and would he increase those fines. He said that he would like to increase those fines to penalize even more harshly churches that continued to gather and to worship the Lord in defiance of public health orders. However, to do so would require legislation. It would require, you know, Parliament getting together and and passing legislation, and that realistically he couldn't do that uh, before March, which was fine. But then he voluntarily of his own accord went on to say, and this is a direct quote, quote, what people need to understand is that I respect the role of faith in their lives, And faith helps them get through this pandemic, but faith alone is not going to save them from getting the virus. I respect your faith. It's a wonderful crutch. It's not going to do what you need it to do. That's my paraphrase. That's not the most gracious reading of his words. But his exact words, if you just listen carefully, what people need to understand you need to understand this, is that I respect your faith. I respect the role of faith in your life. It helps you get through this pandemic. Your faith helps you get through this pandemic. But faith alone is not going to save you from getting the virus. Now, we use this word faith in a general way to talk about believing in something, But in the context in which he was offering these remarks, he was talking about Christian churches. So the most honest understanding of his words in that context is that he is speaking of Jesus Christ. These are Christian churches that he's talking about when he offers these remarks off the cuff, extemporaneously, unprompted, unprovoked. He's talking about Christian churches who worship Jesus Christ. And so though he wants to make his viewpoint rather vague and ambiguous, and he wants to talk about faith as though it's some sort of an abstract concept, he is denouncing the power of Jesus Christ to keep people from getting the virus. Now, don't misunderstand me. I I know that God works all things together for good. Nowhere in his word has he ever promised any of us that we will supernaturally be prevented from catching COVID-19. But our God is sovereign. And if he wants to keep us from getting sick, he most certainly can. Mike Farnsworth's opinion of Jesus Christ is horrific. His opinion of the role of faith is laughable. It's the crutch argument. 
when he makes the statement, faith helps you get through the pandemic, he is saying in slightly different words what critics of faith have said for so long that we use it as a crutch. It's just a crutch in your life. It gives you what you need. It helps you to get on with with your day-to-day. He's not saying that word for word, but if you listen carefully to what he's saying, that's basically what he's getting at. I respect your crutch that you need. It's a great crutch, but your crutch isn't going to save you. That's another way of understanding the Honorable Mike Farnsworth's comments regarding our beliefs. With all that we see happening, with the abortion of over 90,000 children in Canada every year, with the penalizing of Christian families who want to adopt, who want to foster, with the forced indoctrination of our children in an ideology which is abhorrent to the Lord, sexual identity, transgenderism, with all of this, we find ourselves in incredibly dark times. God's people have been here before. The prophet Jeremiah lived in a time not all that dissimilar to the time in which we are living. In the last decade of the longest, darkest reign of Judah's history. Somewhere between 640 and 630 BC, two boys were born who were to be among God's final gifts of mercies to a demoralized people. The wicked king Manasseh's reign was coming to an end, and after a half century of deliberately turning the nation of Israel back to the deities of Canaan and Assyria, back to the black arts of magic, and necromancy back to human sacrifice, even infanticide happening within the king's own family, to such travesties of justice that in the language of Second Kings, it says that Manasseh, quote, had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with blood. In the midst of this horrific reign, God gives two young men to the nation of Israel. The first is a young man named Josiah, who is born to eventually become king. And as king, he is going to abolish many of these practices that Manasseh has established. He is going to seek to do away with uh, all of the different idolatry, all of the pagan worship. He is going to try to abolish those practices. Another man is also going to be born, the prophet Jeremiah. His job is going to be far more difficult, far more impossible. Whereas Josiah is going to be born to be king in order to end the outward practice of false worship, Jeremiah is going to be tasked with the responsibility of preaching God's word in the hopes that people will turn back to the Lord in heartfelt repentance. Whereas Josiah is going after outward behaviors and reforms from the law, Jeremiah is after their hearts with God's word. His preaching does not meet with success. Over the course of his 40-year prophetic ministry, he is going to see exactly two converts. Two. Baruch, who is going to become his scribe, his secretary, and Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch, who would serve in the king's court, serve King Josiah. Well, that doesn't sound very encouraging. Jeremiah, I've called you from the womb. Go preach. Yes, Lord. He goes and he preaches. And at the end of the day, he has exactly two 
converts to show for all of his preaching. It could leave a preacher feeling pretty demoralized. It sure would make me feel like my life had been a waste. But it gets worse than that. Not only did he only have two converts, but the people he was preaching to wanted to kill him. We pick it up in chapter 11, verse 18. It says, The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. He describes himself. He says, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I didn't know that it was against me that they had devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. Jeremiah says, I didn't understand that when they were plotting their schemes and their wickedness that they were coming for me. And what's even fascinating, if you jump down uh, to uh, verse 21, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anatoth. Well, where is Jeremiah from? He's from Anatoth. So these men, as it says in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, he's born to Hilkiah, who was a priest in Anatoth. That's who his dad was. So the men of Anatoth, these are the men of his own hometown. These are his neighbors. These are his friends. These are the kids he grew up with. These are his people. And the Lord says concerning those guys who seek your life, those guys who say, this is in verse 21, don't prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. That, that's the people that Jeremiah is talking about, that's the people that the Lord is addressing when he responds to Jeremiah. So what we understand is that Jeremiah in his preaching ministry went out and he preached about the Lord. He says, you need to turn back to the Lord. You need to hope in the Lord. And their response was, stop saying that. That's not going to help us. Faith in God alone isn't going to save you. You need to engage in these other things. You need to uh, worship idols. You need to engage in all these other forms of wickedness. And in fact, if you keep on suggesting that we just need to turn back to the Lord in heartfelt repentance, we're going to kill you and your kids to make sure that there's no remembrance of you at all. That is some serious gangster mafia oppression going on there. It's like, not enough for us to silence you. We're going to kill your kids and your family and your dog and everything so that there's no remembrance of you. That's what they say. Now, if you're Jeremiah and you're called to preach and you're given the specific task of going after people's hearts that they would hear the word of the Lord, that they would worship the Lord, and their response is, shut up or die, you would feel pretty much like your life's calling was useless, that you had failed, that you had served no great task. You might feel something along the lines of an existential threat to your existence. You say, oh, preacher, you're using big words. What exactly does that mean? It's a word that we should become more and more familiar with, particularly in recent days, because Canadians are starting to wonder about themselves, of what it means to exist. A recent survey found that nearly 8 out of 10 Canadians, or 77%, said that 2020 and the pandemic had put the entire country into a, quote, existential crisis. Nearly two out of three, 65%, say that they themselves have wrestled with and experienced this crisis directly over the last year. Now, what do they mean when they say that? What do I mean when I say that Jeremiah might be feeling this way? What exactly is an existential crisis? Well, an existential crisis can refer to one of two things. This word 
existential crisis. It can refer to either physical death. uh, It can refer to questions about whether or not someone can continue on, continue to live, or whether or not their death is at hand. And COVID-19, in this sense, has been understood as an existential threat because it can cause death. It, it, uh, it is a dangerous disease in that respect. Also, the response to the virus has meant that many businesses from providers of different livelihoods, um, favorite shops and restaurants and things of this nature, they've gone out of business. They've ceased to exist. So from, for many small business owners, COVID-19 and the response of the government has presented an existential threat to their business. Their business can't continue to exist, can't continue to function in the way that it had previously. But this idea of existential crisis, as originally coined by philosophers, refers to something far deeper than just basic existence. It's referring to questions of meaning. It's referring to the idea of why do we exist in the first place? In that sense, existential crisis, as coined by the philosophers, is an experience that makes people feel that their lives are ultimately meaningless that they don't have any value. And the study goes on to report that many within Canada are feeling defeated, feeling overwhelmed. The pandemic has left them with a lack of motivation and questioning their identity, all of which would point to a crisis of meaning. Why are we here? Are we here simply just to keep breathing? Because that seems to be what the governing authorities are communicating to us. Our continued breathing, just staying alive, is all that matters. What we see slowly emerging, painfully slow, but yet still emerging, is that people find tremendous meaning in their work. A coronavirus lockdown has prevented people from going to their workplaces, either because uh, they've been forced to work from home, telecommuting by their job, telecommuting for the sake of their job, and that's resulted in a loss of interaction with their colleagues and their customers. It's resulted in them feeling stifled in the outlet that they have for the use of their talents and their abilities. It's this feeling of not contributing or not being worth anything that, ma- that makes a person start to doubt their, their purpose for working there, their existence there. People find meaning in their relationships, The lockdowns did allow people to spend more time with their immediate families, which was a good thing, but it also led to a great deal of conflict. They couldn't go out with friends. They couldn't visit loved ones who lived farther away, particularly over the Christmas holidays. People weren't allowed to get together with extended family as they had in previous years, and all of that led to a sense of loneliness and isolation, which led to a questioning of meaning. What is our purpose here. And last and most important of all, COVID-19 lockdown has shut the doors of churches. The government has forbidden congregations from meeting together for the sake of worship. Churches have continued to meet virtually. Some churches have continued to gather. But this isn't the same. This virtual meeting isn't the same as an embodied fellowship actually getting together. And so some Christians have accepted the reasons for the emergency while others have resisted. But in the midst of all of this, religious liberty was in fact taken. 
As other challenges to religious liberty continue to build, such as accusations that the moral teachings of the church constitute discrimination against various people groups, the meaning of our churches, the reason for their existence, has been undermined. Jeremiah is called to preach in order that people would repent and turn back to the Lord. He has two converts, and his own neighbors are trying to kill him. He is experiencing an existential crisis. What is the reason for this? He is experiencing undoubtedly the same questions that many Canadians are beginning to experience. He's asking the same questions that we're asking. And here's the Lord's response, beginning in verse 21. The Lord says, concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. Verse 22, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword and their sons and their daughters shall die by famine and none of them shall be left for I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth the year of their punishment. This is all rather vague. It's all rather ambiguous. God says, I will do justice. I will defend you. I will uphold your right. But he doesn't say when. Nevertheless, his answer to Jeremiah, when Jeremiah says, oh, these guys are out to kill me, his answer is, I will do what is right. Which means... That as far as Jeremiah is concerned, and as far as you and I are concerned, our existence is understood first and foremost always to bring glory and honor to God. God doesn't say to Jeremiah, just hang in there, kid, buck up, you know, stand firm, stand tall. Eventually, everybody's going to get converted, and they're all going to come to faith, and they're going to worship me, and they'll all be clapping and praising you at the end of your life. He doesn't say that. God never says that. That isn't the assurance that he gives to Jeremiah. Also, these guys want to kill Jeremiah. God never says here, don't worry. They're going to try to kill you, but you'll get away scot-free. He doesn't make that promise either. There are none of those promises made to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, I'm preaching your word. I'm doing what you called me to do. None of it is working. These guys aren't listening. They want to kill me. And God says, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, mm mm-hmm. And when they do, if they do, I will do justice for you. And that should be sufficient for Jeremiah. That ought to be all he needs to hear as far as God is concerned. What God is saying to Jeremiah is whether people listen to the word of God, whether people give themselves over to repentance and accept the forgiveness and the mercy that God offers, that is not ultimately your concern, Jeremiah. You're not living for the salvation of the masses. You're not living for the conversion of people. You're living for something else. And if you're feeling discouraged right now, what you need to know is that I'm God and I rule and I will do justice for everyone. And that, as far as God is concerned, should satisfy Jeremiah. Now, this is a moment where you and I, as we enter into 21, we need to step back and ask ourselves, do we live for the glory of God? Jeremiah is about to get real authentic with the Lord. That's the buzzword that Christians like to use. He's about to get authentic. He's about to say, Lord, uh, 
you're wrong. I wish you'd just do justice right now. This is, these people take root, they, they flourish, they thrive, and, and I don't like it, and I want you to do justice, and I want you to do it right now. He says, God, you're righteous, and now I'm going to complain to you and tell you that I don't like it. He is about to bear his heart. He is about to tell God that he doesn't like what's going on, that he wants it to be different, which is sort of an admission that he's not fully trusting in God's plan. Jeremiah is getting authentic. He's showing us who he really is. He's showing God who he really is. We Christians have taken this concept of authenticity and we've turned it on its head. It is a noble word that describes integrity, that describes truthfulness, that describes honesty. These are great Christian virtues. And what we have done is we have taken this idea of authenticity. I'm just keeping it real, man. These little, these catchwords, these phrases we like to throw around. And we have twisted it on its head not as a description of us trying to be honest about who we are, but we've taken this word authenticity and we've used it as a license, a permission to indulge our vices. In other words, we understand that one of the things that we need to do as Christians is we need to read our Bibles on a daily basis. I don't read my Bible on a daily basis. I'm just going to confess that all to you and I'm going to be authentic. And everybody hears that and says, that's great, man. That's got humility. He's authentic. He's, he's being transparent. I appreciate that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Except that we then take that authenticity and we use it to justify continuing on in spiritual mediocrity. I've been authentic. I've been keeping it real. I don't read my Bible. Yes. Thank you for sharing that shouldn't you? Jeremiah is about to get real authentic with God. And what we need to see is that God gets real authentic back with Jeremiah. Jeremiah makes this statement. He says, righteous are you, O Lord. You're awesome. I'm going to complain. Righteous are you when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. He goes on to say, why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all who are treacherous thrive? Why does this happen? It doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem like it should be the case. Now, there are two, at least two plausible but still wrong answers to the prophet's question. When he says, God, you're righteous, but I have this issue. I have this complaint with you. Number one, uh, these guys thrive. The people who preach your word, the people who are worshiping you, they don't thrive. These people who pay lip service to you, but their hearts are far from you, they thrive. Now, when Jeremiah poses this question, he could be saying to God, God, I don't think that you're in control. That's the first answer. What you say is righteous is not being done, and these people who are not righteous, they're thriving, and they're continuing on. You say you're going to do justice. You say that you're going to show the world your righteousness, but it's not happening. So one explanation for why that is, is that you're not in control. Or the second explanation is that you're not good. Either you're not in control and not capable of removing these people, or you're not entirely good. And that's why you're allowing them to continue to thrive. Now, these are both wrong questions. These are both wrong assumptions. Jeremiah's complaint is the reverse of what we read in the book of Psalms. 
In Psalm 1, it is the righteous man who, quote, is like a tree planted by still waters who yields its fruit in its season. In Psalm 1, the wicked are later described as just chaff that the wind blows away. But here in Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah, who is undoubtedly very familiar with Psalm 1, he uses that language to say, what you said in Psalm 1 is not what I see happening. It's actually the righteous who are being blown away by like chaff, and it's the wicked who are taking root and who are flourishing. That's what Jeremiah is getting at. Jeremiah had heard God's promise to destroy the men of Anathoth, but he wanted to know why judgment wasn't happening right now, sooner rather than later. He wanted God to write the final chapter on human evil right now. He wanted the history books to be over. He wanted it to be done. Many Christians feel this same way. We've heard that God will judge every deed, whether it's done out in the open or whether it's done secret behind closed doors. We know that the enemies of God are all going to be put to shame one day and that those of us who have hoped in Christ will be exonerated. But we're not satisfied. We want it to be over. We want it to be done right now. And I know that over the last year, particularly as we've all struggled together as a church coming through this pandemic, we've all sort of reached this point of weariness where we're like, I'm just so frustrated by everything. I'm just done with it. And I want God to make this be over with right now. I know that there are several of you who are right now thinking, I can't wait for that vaccine to come so that the pandemic will be over and then everything will go back to normal. If you're thinking that as soon as the pandemic is over, that our government officials are going to say, you know, in retrospect, we really did overreact and we stripped you of your right to worship God and that was all wrong and we're sorry. We'll never do it again. If that's your thinking of what they're going to say, I think you're in for a shocking surprise. I don't think they're going to say that. I think that the track record of the last five years alone shows that rather they're going to double down. They're going to use the pandemic and its aftermath as an opportunity for further implementing controls, for further implementing restrictions that they can use to make sure this never happens again, whatever that is, whatever that might mean. And I think what we'll see is that tomorrow will be far more difficult than today. This is what God says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, you plant them and they take root. They grow and they produce fruit. You are near on their lips and their mouth, but you are far from their heart. You know me, O Lord. You see me, you test my heart. Here's what Jeremiah says to do. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn? and the grass of every field wither. For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because these wicked people have said, God will not see our later days. That's what Jeremiah says. How long are you going to let this go on? Notice the Lord's response. He doesn't say, just six more months, then there's going to be a vaccine, We can all breathe a sigh of relief. His answer to Jeremiah and his answer to you and me 
If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how are you going to compete with the horses? God's answer ends with a question mark. So Jeremiah wants to put God to the question. He wants to put God under the microscope. He wants to question God, say, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Answer me, Lord. It's not all that different from Job. You'll recall in the book of Job, Job did the same thing. And God's response to Job is not all that different than his response to Jeremiah. In the book of Job, God says to Job, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who is this idiot who talks without knowing anything about what he's talking about? He says, dress for action like a man. I will ask you a question and you answer me. That's God's response to Job when Job starts to question the goodness of God. Jeremiah questions God, what he's doing. He's like, you're righteous, God. I just want you to know that. But I don't understand why you're continuing to allow these people to carry on. Tell you what, God, why don't you just give me an answer to this question? How long? God doesn't answer the question. And again, as we saw in chapter 11, Jeremiah should be satisfied by seeing that his life is lived for the glory of God, but he's not, so he presses the case further. He says, how long? And this is God's response. He says to him, look, let's go run in a track meet. And he takes Jeremiah to a fairly ordinary track meet with a lot of other runners, human runners, Jeremiah starts off, he runs the 1,500 meter, perhaps he carries on with a few 400 meter relays, he does a bunch of sprints, 100 yard dash, so forth and so on, and after he's done competing in the track meet, when he's in the infield, doubled over, breathing in exhaustion, God hands him a bottle of Gatorade and says, drink up, look over there, here come the horses, it's time for the equestrian events. As Jeremiah is out of breath, as he's exhausted, God says, okay, are you ready for your version of the Kentucky Derby? Are you ready to run? Now, you just need to understand, Jeremiah, you're over there in lane five next to the stallion. In case you were wondering, all the bobtail nags already ran in the previous heat. You're going to go up against the horses. Are you ready for it? Now, when he makes this statement to Jeremiah, the implication is clear. You think it's tough now, but it is not the worst that God intends. As bad as you think things are, as horrible as you think the situation may be, God has darker days coming for us. This can be clearly seen from the book of Revelation, from the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament. It was true for Jeremiah, and it's true for us. Jeremiah says, how long is this going to go on? And God does not answer his question. God says, how are you ever going to make it with this attitude? How are you ever going to get where I need you to be when you question the circumstances and the situation that I have sovereignly brought into your life. That's what God is saying. He goes on in the next part of the verse 5 to make the same point a second time. He says, if you stumble in a safe country, how are you going to manage in the thickets of Jordan? In a Canadian context, it's like saying, if you can't walk over the smooth, flat ground of Saskatchewan, how are you ever going to make it in the mountains of British Columbia? If you can't just walk from here to there, how are you going to go through the thicket? The idea, again, being 
that as bad as things are, God's intention is that they will get worse. And if Jeremiah thought he had trouble today, then he just needed to wait until tomorrow. Anyone who gets discouraged, downtrodden, and defeated over little things is never going to be able to fulfill God's divine calling on their life. Even if little disappointments tempted Jeremiah to leave his calling, then how is he ever going to be able to cope with real persecution? God had great things in store for Jeremiah, but he's only going to achieve them if he's willing to be faithful in the little things. Do you hear that, church? God has great things in mind, but we're only going to achieve those things if we're small in the little things, if we're faithful in the small things. If we complain about simple things that God has already asked us to do, then we lack the spiritual strength to do what he wants us to do next. If our troubles keep us from doing the Lord's work today, we will never have the strength to do it later. That's the point of this passage. If what you're experiencing today is too hard for you, and if you give yourself a pass and say, look, I'm just going to sit on the back bench. I'm going to sit this one out. If you are not faithful today, you will not suddenly become faithful tomorrow. If you do not persevere in the difficult situations in which you find yourself right now, January 3rd, 2021, you are not going to persevere in the difficult situations that you're going to encounter January 3rd, 2022. Do you hear that? If you can't run the simple race today, it's only getting more and more complicated tomorrow. If we are going to want to do great things for God, then we must begin by doing the little things for God. And the only way to do the little things for God is to do them starting today and not tomorrow. Philip Brooks, in commenting on this particular passage, says, Don't pray, then, for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. He says, Don't pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers that are equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work will be no miracle. Rather, the miracle will be the doing of God in you and through you. The only easy day was yesterday. If you keep waiting for that moment when things are going to settle down and get easier, you wait in vain. I recall three years ago when we were trying to start the school. We were rushed around four years ago trying to start school. We rushed around like madmen with our heads cut off. We were horrified at what was being introduced into the public education system. We got the school up and running. We said, phew. Now we can all take a giant breath and we can content ourselves that we've, we've solved the problem and uh, now we don't have to worry about anything. And yet we lost court case after court case after court case and we just see it progressively getting darker and darker and more and more difficult as we go. There was no easy day. There will never be easy days until the Lord returns. All of this leads me to the question, what are we doing with our evangelism it's the new year. It's 2021. We are prone to making New Year's wishes, not resolutions. They're wishes. The difference between a wish and a resolution is 
A resolution is something you actually resolve and plan to do. A wish is something that you say you're going to do, but then January 3rd rolls around, January 4th rolls around, and you've not even started to do it yet, and you have no intention of actually doing it. A wish is just something we say. A a resolution is something we resolve. So what is your New Year's resolution with regards to evangelism? What is your plan for sharing your faith with your neighbor? We have, over the last century, last 20th century, engaged in what can be described as a tractional church, more commonly known in our current day by the Rick Warren label, seeker-sensitive church. The idea has been that we're going to make our church as comfortable as possible for people in the world to come to our church. We're going to make ourselves as much like the world as we possibly can so that the world will feel comfortable in our church, that they will come. And then in due time, we will then tell them about Jesus Christ. At some point, we will confront them with the gospel. And the fruits of this have become abundantly clear. The church has started to look less and less and less like the church and more and more and more like the world. And rather than the world being converted to Christ and joining the church, we see the conversion rate going the other direction. The church is now being converted to becoming more like the world. Attractional church is not going to work when you have the leaders of your government saying church is not essential. What is it that we stand for? What is it that we think is so important? We might as well uphold that and proclaim that as offensive as it may be. We might as well proclaim it in all its glory because of how incredibly important it is. We've left behind attractional church. And the century in which we could invite people in and say, just come check it out, you know, come and see how awesome the music is and the, you know, the presentation, the, the pep talk that the guy up front gives wearing the Hawaiian shirt, come see all of that. That day is gone. That's gone. Now we're in the 21st century. We're living in a country that is increasingly, increasingly authoritarian. And the question is, we didn't do a great job sharing our faith in the previous decade What do we think we need to do differently now, today? Just keep on with the same plan that we did last 10 years, and eventually the current decade will somehow get easier for making that a success. Don't deceive yourself. Don't be naive. It's not going to work. No. Witnessing in the 21st century, evangelism in the 21st century, is going to have to become more confrontational, more like the prophet Jeremiah. I take us here to Jeremiah today because his circumstances in which he preached are not all that different from the circumstances in which you and I find ourselves today. The method that he employed was confrontational. It was offensive. It led to the people of his own hometown wanting to kill him and worse. Look back at the text. Verse 6. God speaking to Jeremiah says, if you think it's going to get easier, you're mistaken. The only easy day was yesterday. If you can't run with the men, how are you going to keep up with the horses? If you have mistakes, if you can't get along on a flat ground, how are you going to do in the thicket around Jordan? Verse 6, even, look at this, your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Don't Believe them, even though they speak friendly words to you. 
Jeremiah says, I'm upset because my own neighbors want to kill me. God says, you've got bigger problems than that that you don't even know about. Your own father, your own brothers and sisters, they are out to get you. They're also in full cry after you. You thought it was hard having your next door neighbor oppose you. You've entered into another realm, Jeremiah. Your own family is in opposition against you. Attractional church didn't work. It's not going to work today. Some people may have been saved in those ministries, but many, many more were just hardened and further convinced that they didn't actually need the Lord. And we're entering into a time in which the importance of church, the question surrounding whether or not church is essential, has produced a dividing line that does not cut between Believer and unbeliever, it's cutting right through our own homes. In which we have families, people whom we dearly love, in sharp disagreement about whether or not we should be worshiping, gathering to worship the Lord. You think it's bad, I want you to see it's far worse. The real issue that we are facing, the real mistake that we have encountered is that we have churches here in British Columbia, pastors here in British Columbia, which in emails and correspondence sent out to many other pastors have openly said, gathering to worship the Lord is not important. I was included in an email chain before the Christmas holidays. I want you to understand I don't necessarily agree with everything that went on in this email chain. I myself didn't contribute to the discussion, but I listened as over 130 different pastors all across British Columbia began to debate the importance of gathering for worship. Many said the best thing we can do for our country right now is to gather in prayer for God's healing, to worship him in obedience to his word, that will be the best way to alleviate our country from all that plagues us, not just this virus. And many more pastors chimed in and said, there are other ways to do church besides gathering and worshiping the Lord. I can be the church by myself at home. I can be the church walking in the woods on a Sunday morning all by myself. All of this completely contrary to the scriptures. Jesus defines what the church is. And Jesus defines what our worship should look like. To hear that coming from pastors was deeply disturbing to me. And I hope that it's deeply disturbing to you as well. Witnessing in the 21st century is going to require confrontation and a willingness to embrace hardship persecution, even from within our own families. How are we going to run with the horses? The best answer is the one that comes from Isaiah, chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary 
and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. If you want to know how you can run with the horses, the answer is simple. You walk with the Lord. He gives you strength to keep pace. Even when we run with the horses, those horses that we are striving bear a number of different names. Soji, public education system, whether or not church is essential. We can look to the Lord to give us what we need to continue to strive and to continue to present the truth. There's an interesting statement that Jeremiah makes here. If you look back in verse 19, chapter 11, Jeremiah says, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. This is an allusion to Jesus Christ. Do you know what happened to Jeremiah? He preached his whole life. He had two converts, and eventually he was preaching. They took him into custody, and as they were fleeing from outside oppressors, they dragged him in captivity against his will off to Egypt, where he most certainly died. We don't know what actually ever became of Jeremiah. We don't know what his end was. The people didn't listen to him. They arrested him, and they dragged him off to a foreign country as they fled for their lives. That's all we know about Jeremiah. It was not a happy ever after ending for Jeremiah if the ending, the happy ever after that we were looking for, is to be found in this life only. Of course, he is one of the heroes of the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith. And his life alluded to the life of his Savior, the one who was to come. In the same way that Jeremiah understood his ministry and his work being persecuted, he considered himself like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Jesus also met with opposition. Jesus also was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Just like Jeremiah, Jesus was the victim of conspiracy. The scribes and the Pharisees plotted against him to take his life And just like Jeremiah, Jesus was betrayed by somebody who was close to him. His execution sealed with the kiss from his own disciple, Judas. Just like Jeremiah, Jesus was rejected by friends and family for preaching the word of God. Just as Jeremiah describes himself here, Jesus is described as a gentle lamb that was to be led to the slaughter. Jeremiah, therefore, is one of the prophets who foretold how Christ would come to suffer and through his suffering bring salvation for us all. We have in Jesus the answer to all of our problems. The solution is given to us by Christ dying on the cross to atone for our sins. But the example we're called to follow, the hope we're called to have, is also found in Christ. Peter describes him this way. He says, though he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he continued entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Jesus knew that the end was not the cross, but the end was in the resurrection. Church, though we face dark days... It's not the end. Though we are going to experience greater persecution, that is not the end. Though our own family members may oppose us, that is not 
the end. We have the hope of eternal life. Because of that hope, the question we have to ask ourselves is not, when will we start to be faithful? But why don't we start being faithful right now? The question we have to ask ourselves is why? What keeps us from obeying Christ right now? Yes, we're entering into dark times, but we're not the first to do so. And we're not going to be the last. I'm reminded of a word of encouragement from Charles Spurgeon. If we're getting tired of fighting for biblical truth, listen to what Spurgeon had to say. In his day and age, during a controversy known as the downgrade controversy, he made this comment. We admire a man who was firm in the faith, say 400 years ago. But if there's a man today who stands up for doctrine or Christian principles, we consider such a man a nuisance. He must be put down. We call him a narrow-minded bigot, or we give him worse names, if you can think of one. Yet imagine in those ages past, heroes such as Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and their peers. Imagine if they had said, the world is out of order, but if we try to set it right, we shall only make a great row, and we will get ourselves into a disgrace. Let us retire to our chambers and put on our nightcaps and sleep over the bad times. And perhaps when we wake up in the morning, things will have gotten better. In other words, maybe tomorrow will be easier than today. Spurgeon goes on, conduct, such conduct on their part would have entailed upon us a heritage of error. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps and the pestiferous gobs of error would have swallowed us all. These men loved the faith and they loved the name of Jesus too well to see such things trampled upon. It is today as it was in the reformer's day. Decision is needed. Here is the day for the man, but where is the man for the day? We who have had the gospel passed on to us by martyred hands dare not trifle with it, nor sit by and hear it denied by traitors who pretend to love it, but are inwardly abhorrent of every line of it. Look, you sirs, there are yet ages to come. If the Lord doesn't quickly appear, there will come another generation and another, and all these generations will be tainted and injured if we are not faithful to God and to his truth today. We have come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, it may be that our children and our children's children will go that way. But if we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and his word. God says to Jeremiah, if you have raced with men and gotten weary, how will you compete with the horses? Let us resolve today, First Baptist Church, to be faithful starting today. Pray with me. Father in heaven, our tasks are not easy and they don't get easier. As we enter into 2021, our prayer, Father, is that you would help us to understand that truth, that this is only going to get harder, it's only going to get more difficult, and yet your grace is always with us to help us to being faithful today. Lord, let us not look to the practical measured results. Let us not consider whether or not 
we see any good coming from our faithfulness, let us content ourselves, Lord, that you see us, that we are faithful for you, to you, for your glory alone. God, help us to be faithful to you, we pray. And Lord, whatever our lot in life may be, our prayer, Lord, as it gets more and more difficult, is that we would know your constant presence with us through it all, giving us the strength we need, giving us the courage that we lack, making a miracle happen through us. Lord, work your miracle in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> First